You are listening to From Sobriety to Recovery with Jesse Mogul, episode 189. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to From Sobriety to Recovery. I am your host, Jesse Mogul. I am in addiction recovery, and as always, I'm excited about this week's show. Talking about the science of addiction with uh, Dr. Trisha Whitty was absolutely fascinating. I really, really, really enjoyed it, and I can't wait to have her on again in the future. So instead of just rehashing what we experienced with that episode, I actually want to dive into um, a topic that I've been sitting on for a little while. Because I've been wanting to gather some more data about this. And so um, I'm not really sure what the name of this will end up being. But in my show notes, I'm calling it Stigma Part 1. If I can do it, so can you. If I did it, so can you. Something to that effect. Now, why is this going to be the theme for the episode? I have heard this a lot, especially in meetings in the addiction world. Well, you know, somebody will tell their story and it'll be like, hey, just keep coming back because if I can do it, so can you. And there's a lot of minimizing there. And there's a lot of what we would call in in um, the self-help world of comparative deletion. It's a term we use in neuro-linguistic programming where we're comparing two things, but we're deleting a lot of information that doesn't actually make those two things comparable at all. And so have you heard this before? If I did it, so can you. If I can do it, so can you. Well, others have had it worse, so what are you complaining about? Um, or, well, others have had it worse. What am I complaining about? If it's, it's not like dad burnt me with cigarettes and beat me with wire hangers. So what's the big deal? When I was a kid, I did that, and I turned out just fine. When I was a kid, that happened to me, and man, set me off on drugs and alcohol for 30 years. They had a great childhood. So what's their problem? When I was a kid, we had it way worse. When I was a kid, we had it so much better. Oh, yeah? Well, this is what happened to me. Maybe you should just stop complaining all the time and do something about it. They don't even know what a hard childhood was like. They have had it so much better than I did. I have heard some, or I've heard all of these um, just over the past month since I started to keep tabs on this stuff. And once I became tuned into it and set my reticular activating system to notice these things, it really was, it was quite easy to locate these. And, you know, was it a confirmation bias because I attuned my unconscious mind to find them? Perhaps, but it wasn't like, you can't make people say this stuff. They just say it. And it's so obvious when they do. And, why this is going to be the topic of today's episode is because when I notice it, you're certainly noticing it in some way or another. And, you know, the news will talk about things like white privilege or tiger moms or even black privilege. They'll talk about this word like privilege. And it's, it's as if they want people to feel guilty that they didn't have to go through stuff. I once came across a quote that said, white privilege isn't about what you've gone through. It's about what you didn't have to go through. And while I have no doubt that there are people out there who have lived very rough, rough lives, um, in no way am I going to compare my life to them because, one, I know better, and two, that is um, rude for both of us. One of the things that ends up happening when we do that is that we minimize the lived experiences that somebody else has had. 
and as someone who's been who's in the process, I mean, I've already been certified as a CRSS, but going through the university class the way that I did made me even more deeply attuned to what it's like to motivational um, interview and really get in and ask questions and listen, not just to the words that are being said, the body language being presented, the tone being utilized, but also to the words not being said to the body language that's not being presented, and to the tone that's not being used. Because there's a lot that's going on in between the lines that can be left to um, our creative imagination. When we don't ask more questions or just settle in and be present for somebody else to share. And when we have this mentality of, well, I went through this, they didn't have to go through that, so what is their problem? We are negating what other people have experienced as not being valuable or hard or suffering or traumatic as, as enough to warrant the life that they now have created for themselves. And make no mistake, I will very much, very much continue to say that you have created this life for yourself that your words don't describe your reality, they create your reality. And it also does not negate the fact that things have happened to you, especially at a young age. You have less and less control. Um, you You just have less control of things when you're four versus whenever you're eight or 12. And certainly once you get old enough to be able to, you know, exodus away from the situation. So yes, did we create our, you know, our addictive lives? Have other people had similar backgrounds and gone on to be PhDs? Sure. Congratulations to them. Doesn't make them better than me. Doesn't make them better than you. They had their lived experience, you had yours, and you have achieved what you've achieved because of whatever you have achieved. Now I'm losing it. Hold on. I'm a little sick today, so my brain might start to spit or spatter. You've achieved what you've achieved because of the effort you have put in. If you look around and your life is less than, I would imagine that you probably put in less than effort. If you look around and you say, my life is pretty freaking awesome, then congratulations. You have, according to your own subjective perspective, put in pretty awesome effort. When we, and I hear this, God, I mean, I hear this so much. Like the other day, a family member was like, I don't know what I'm complaining about. Other grandparents are doing this and they've got a lot less help. And it's somehow negating what this family member is going through the amount of boundaries that they've allowed to be broken, the amount of time and self-care that, that that has fallen to the wayside because they are prioritizing somebody else's life over theirs. And it's commendable. And as a parent or a grandparent who has children in their care, yes, it's sort of the agreement you make when you decide to spawn a child. But a grandparent didn't spawn the grandchild. The grandparent spawned the child and then assumed that when the child had their own kids, they would step up and do the thing that needed to be done in order to take care of their kids. And when that doesn't become the scenario, and the best case scenario is for that the, the child to then go to the grandparent's care, now all of a sudden you have someone who had an idea of what their life was supposed to be. It's not going that way. And at the same time that she is bummed, that she is not getting to live the life she wants to at her age, she's also guilting herself by saying things like, well, other people have it worse. Other grandparents are doing more than I'm doing, and they have less resources. So what am I complaining about? Here's the catch-22 on that. You can simultaneously be happy you can be there for somebody, but disappointed that it's not something else. 
And that doesn't make sense. Let me let me explain it this way. Let me give you an example. Back in Hollywood, I would date. I dated this one particular actress, and she got called on for auditions a lot. And so we would have to cancel plans. And I would tell her, especially this one time, I had to cancel something that meant a lot to me and her to have set up. And I could, and I told her, I was like, she's like, well, you know, I told you this was going to happen, and I feel like you're pissed off. I'm like, I'm not pissed. I was like, I can be simultaneously happy you got this audition, but sad for us not to be able to go do this thing. It is possible to simultaneously be happy and sad about the exact same thing at the same time. You can be happy that you're able to be there for your grandkids or somebody in your family you care about, but also sad that it's taking away an opportunity that you really had your heart set upon going to. Right? It, it is possible to do both. So having that little sidebar be said, when you know when I hear people, and, I've, and I hear, I hear, quite often hear it from parents, they'll be like, well, I don't know what my kid's problem is. When I was a kid, I was a latchkey kid. I had to make my own lunches. I had to make sure I did my homework. Hell, I even had to cook dinner for my parents. So when they came home, it was already ready. And look at my kid. You know, I've been helicoptering around them their whole life. They've never wanted for anything, been playing video games since they were four, had a smartphone since they were eight. I'm like, okay, I get all of these external things have been provided to them that perhaps weren't provided to you. But it doesn't negate the fact that sadness and sorrow and trauma and suffering can happen regardless. I mean, do you think Paris Hilton's ever really wanted for a damn bit of food her entire life? Yet even she got into alcohol and drugs for a spell there. She turned it around. Apparently she went to some really shitty, horrible rehabilitation camp. And now she's, you know, out there being the uh, siren on that whole, you know, version of, of an institution that's meant to help. But that's actually torturing people. You know, she's doing a great job in that regard. And she's a fine businesswoman now. And I remember when she was going through it, I remember like, let her just snort her brains out for four years. She'll get over it. Just like everybody, you know, it either kills you or you get over it, right? There's very few people that just tread water with, you know, those kind of things for a long period of time. I remember being like, you know, whatever, you know, I mean, she's got the means to get out of it. Now, does that mean that, that someone who was born in the trailer park or inner city who doesn't have it as fantastic, who gets into the stuff is any less worthy of recovery and sobriety and making something of their lives? No. Did Paris Hilton have more opportunity, right? In regards to finances, Okay, we can't deny that. You come from a billionaire family. You're not it's not like if you need to go to Passage Mal, Passage uh, Malibu Passages, Passages Malibu. She can afford it, in other words. She can afford the best of all the care. But, you know, Robert Downey Jr. and the Rob Lowe's of the world, some of them had to go through countless amounts of uh hell, Chandler um recently came out, Chandler from Friends, Matthew Perry recently came out. That dude had gone to tons of different rehabs. And finally was able to come out of that. And he's still working through it. You can watch that Diane Sawyer thing and still see that this man's going through a lot. So imagine if somebody watches him and says, well, you know, I had to work three jobs and I was a janitor and, and, I, and I, you know, I cleaned garbage cans at three in the morning, at, you know, in a subway station in downtown Boston. And what the hell is Matthew Perry bitching about? He was on a freaking star of a television show in his early 20s and he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Why does he have an addiction problem? He's just a little bitch. Well, imagine, I mean, I could hear someone saying that, but it's completely irrational because we know that addiction doesn't spare anyone. We know it doesn't. So simply saying something like, well, 
My life was way more hard than he was. What the hell is his problem? Why does he have an addiction issue? Because he's got all this money. Because he's got all these fancy cars. Because he's dating hot models. That doesn't have nothing to do with shit. And I think we all know that. So when we, you hear a parent being like, well, I've done this, 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 and this, and this for him. Why are they an addict? Or I've done this, this, and this. Why aren't they getting good grades at school? This, 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 and this. Why aren't they blank? I have done. They were provided blank. Why aren't they achieving blank? I achieved blank, and I was provided a lot less blank. I get it. I get it. From your subjective perspective, it's easy to pass judgment. It can be. I'm not I'm not railing against anybody in particular. You might be putting yourself in this story because you notice yourself doing it. Or you might be putting somebody else in your family or in your friendship circle or at school or college or wherever it might be at your meetings and say, oh, wow, that person's absolutely doing this. This is why we're calling a stigma part one. If I can do it, so can you. That is minimizing somebody else's lived experience. That's you saying, my life was so much more of a shit show than yours. How dare you have the audacity to not successfully make your way from sobriety to recovery? How dare you not succeed? In fact, you don't succeed, then you're a piece of shit because my life was way worse than yours and I successfully came through it. So if anything about your sobriety and recovery doesn't work out better than mine, you're a loser. That's more comical than maybe I should have made it, but that is absolutely, whether somebody realizes it or not, when they say, if I can do it, so can you, that is the message behind that statement, that my life was way worse than your life, so if I can do it, so can you. We think that when we say it, it is it is championing somebody else's cause. It is saying, you can do this. And I will say this, yes, we know sobriety and recovery are possible because other people have achieved it. We're not trying to walk on the surface of Pluto here. People have been addicted, had addiction, had substance use disorder, and worked their way through it. With a, through a period of time to come out into sobriety and on into recovery. We know it's possible because it's been done, but it doesn't necessarily mean that your version of it is going to look and feel and sound and smell and taste exactly like anybody else's. And when we say and we hear and we allow other people around us to say statements like, well, I had it this way and, it's what, and why can't they do it? I had this childhood, and look what I was able to accomplish. What we're saying is, what the fuck's wrong with that person? My life was way worse. I achieved it. They need to pull their head out of their butt, and they need to figure it out. That's really the energy behind it, right? You, you, If you want to try to debate that, then just listen to somebody say that, and then just chunk it up a level or two. Just climb up a ladder. What exactly are they, what is the meaning of the words, if I can do it, so can you? Because it's like, well, yeah, I mean, we know other humans have done it, so therefore we know we can. But when you say a blanket statement like, look, guys, I've heard speakers at AA meetings do this. They'll ramble on for an hour about all their use and living in alleys and garbage cans. and They'll be like, but hey, you know what? In the end, it works if you work it. Just keep coming back. If I can get sober, so can you. You, and I've heard multiple speakers do this, it will go through a whole hour of, of, it's like 57 minutes of just the bottom barrel of their life. And then at the end, without really 
bringing a, tying it all up in a bow or bringing a lesson. I was like, okay, let me get this straight. For 57 minutes, I've just listened to you tell me your horror stories of addiction that back then you were probably pretty happy about. And then at the very end, to sum it all up, you've said, it works if you work it. Keep coming back. If I can do it, so can you. <laughs> awesome message. Thank you. That's great. <laughs> I don't need to hear somebody tell that story. If I want to watch somebody's life, you know, just drop down into the barrel of nothingness and, and a wasteland, I'll go watch, you know, uh, Requiem for a Dream or Basketball Diaries. Like, I already know what it's like to drag myself through the bottom of the shit show and then try to climb out of it with the crabs trying to pull at my feet to bring me back in. Like, I already know. But it doesn't mean that just because you did it that I should too. That that it's it's negating. It's it, again, it's what we call in the NLP world a comparative deletion. You are trying to compare things, and you're deleting so many things that it doesn't even work that way. Maybe you know. And again, I told you all those things at the beginning. Maybe you should stop complaining all the time and do something about it. Now I have said things similarly, but I don't say stop complaining and do something about it. Where we start saying, okay, it's, you're going to have to take action at some point. Look, I get in the muck and the mire too. I'll sit in my office all day long and be like, oh, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. Why is everything so bad? I'm like that little sad dog in like the 1970s Looney Tunes cartoons. Well, why do I always go through so much badness? Um, now the voice is getting worse. <laughs> I really wish I knew the name of that dog, and he would just walk around being so mopey. Think of Eeyore, if you if that that's probably easier to picture right now, right? Like I, even I have my Eeyore days. At some point, you gotta have to stand up and say, "Okay, what's something I can do?" Like sometimes we have to do things afraid. Sometimes we have to step through the fear, even if just for a brief moment and do something for one minute. We have to take some level of action, knowing that once we get into some level of action, then we can we can begin to heal. We can begin to go through our traumas and we can figure this stuff out. But just sitting in my desk chair, staring out the window, being like, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me, isn't going to fix much. But I'm not going to sit here and be like, stop complaining, Jesse. Stop being a little bitch and get up and do something about it. I will be more gentle on myself than that at times. And then other times, maybe after like four days, I'm like, all right, dude, seriously, figure this out. It's really interesting. I had to pause the microphone to cough. It's very interesting when we start to think about if I can do it, so can you. Uh, I had this happen to me. You didn't have that happen to you. When I achieved this, what the hell's your issue? We cannot... Okay, we can certainly can minimize somebody else's lived experience. Sure, we can do it. Uh, we're not going to build any bridges. You're not going to connect to people. And if you walk around and somebody's like, "Oh my goodness, you know, I wasn't able to uh, turn the assignment in on time today because, uh, you know, my dog drove my car into the river and my child decided to set fire to the television and the tree came to life and started trying to attack me and I had to hide in the bathroom and then next thing you know the shower came to life and it tried to drown me and then next thing you know a wild deer got into my living room and tore everything up and somebody's like, "Yeah, that's great. Let me tell you what happened in my life." today and I was still able to get the assignment in on time. You have just negated and I get that I'm a little ridiculous with some of my examples right now but you, when you say things like, well I don't care what you just told me, this is what I went through and I was able to achieve it. 
you are actively trying to make that person feel bad or guilty for having their own feelings, for having their own lived experiences that have led them to this. Whether they should be using excuses or not, is, is we're not even going to get into that. You are literally trying to make that person feel bad or guilty for not having achieved something that you achieved similarly, regardless of what they just told you. And again, personal responsibility be damned for this conversation. Just regardless of excuses, they've got whatever they've got. They've explained it to you. And you're hearing them, but you ain't listening. You're not even really attempting to connect with them. You think that your life and what you've done is the bar at which the rest of the world should be resting upon... And mind you, I say you, this is a blanket statement, you. You're either putting yourself in this because you've noticed yourself doing it or you're putting somebody else into this story because you absolutely see where they fit into it. Regardless, the you is blanket here. When we hear people saying this and it's like, well, I had this and this and this kind of childhood and what the hell, and look at me, look what I've been able to achieve. Oh, 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 so I see, I see, you're the bar, you're the pedestal we should all be reaching for. You are the one with the statue in the lobby of the hotel. No, no, there, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, no, to anyone on this planet who thinks they're the bar at which the rest of us should be trying to reach for. No, no. And I'll, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll lay it out. Let's see if this example lands. There's this idea of heroes, of heroes in society and of superheroes in movies and things like that. I don't believe that there are heroes per se. I think that people do heroic actions. I believe that in the moment, people are heroic. They do things that go above and beyond. They put themselves in danger in order to save somebody else. The natural human, not maybe natural, because some people's natural reaction is to run the other way, but some level of savior in them, golden child, you know, want to be, you know, helpful, right? We hear about these people on airplanes or, you know, somebody in a mall attacks the shooter and it's like, wow, they're a hero. They did something heroic in the moment. But it doesn't mean a hero is like this idealized version of a human, of a of or of a superhuman superhero, I guess, would be an idealized version of this being from another planet. It is assuming that this person lives their life completely full of integrity and and and, and humility, and the highest levels of values, and they never bend, they never break them. They are always absolutely one hundred percent the most idealized version of a human being you could ever imagine. And that's just not the case. It's not. Even superheroes, like the Supermans, they're like, oh, if I could, man, he's just such a superhero. So now he's, now he's like a super idealized version of a perfect human. Meanwhile, throughout his entire life, he lied to all of his friends. He lied to Lois Lane. He lies to people about who he is. He keeps secrets. He doesn't keep his promises. Now, I get it. He's saving the earth from kryptonites and kryptonians who want to destroy us. I'm not saying that he's not doing some really cool heroic things, but he's not lying to people all the time in order to keep your identity because I'm keeping you safe, which in how many times did Lois Lane find herself in trouble because because smarty pants evil people were were at least smart enough to realize like huh huh uh every time superman's around um so's lois lane and then there's this guy over here with glasses and he always seems to be around lois lane too and look they they're oddly similarly looking if you just take off the fucking glasses <laughs> 
So keeping the secrets doesn't keep people safe. It actually puts them more in harm's way because they don't realize they're in harm's way all the time. You know, look at the, the, the Marvel Universe, the Civil War. You know, these people going at each other. You know, literally, the superheroes getting pissed off and angry. Oh, I'm, I didn't realize the superheroes. I didn't realize an idealized version of a human was vindictful, revengeful, angry, and spiteful, and would take out their negativity on other people in their own inner circle. That's, that's a superhero? Really? So then when we want to be this, we want to be heroes in people's lives, then we put ourselves up on this pedestal and we think, well, we've always got to be living a diligent, disciplined, well thought out, loving, manneristic, you know, highly valued and principled life. And you just, I mean, to attempt to achieve that level of perfection doesn't exist in the human experience. And then I went on that whole little five minute diatribe to, to just accentuate I know that may have been the most absurd possible example I could have come up with, but I just wanted to accentuate the ridiculousness of somebody walking around thinking that their life and what they've achieved and who they've become is the bar at which the rest of the world should somehow be seeking to achieve toward and become. I love me some Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow's done amazing things on the football field. He does amazing things in his own life, but I am sure there are things that even he looks in the mirror and says, I could be better at. He's lost his patience with his wife. He's yelled at his friends. He's done something somewhere out there. Even that man, as as close as people who love him think he is Jesus, I can assure you, he knows how to look in the mirror and say, probably could have done that a little bit better. I mean, first and foremost, stop trying to be a quarterback when nobody wants to start you at that position and become a tight end. Maybe you'd still be in the freaking league. But no, he wanted to be the leader. He wanted the ball. He chose ego and hubris over the, over the ability to be a team player and choose a different position, and now he's talking football instead of playing football, which is fine for him. But he's not a hero. He's done some heroic things. But even he has fallibility. We all have fallibility. Minimizing somebody else's lived experience by saying that mine is more painful or more, or more detrimental or more traumatic, right, is is you're you're negating what somebody else has gone through, and you are you're literally standing in front of them, saying instead of building a bridge of connection, I'm going to explain to you how much better I am at this than you are, and if, and, and I did it. Why can't you? That's going to bring up. It's like literally you are evoking guilt, shame, sadness, fear, isolation, loneliness, rejection in this other person. And in this moment, they are attempting to be vulnerable and open and, and honest with you. And instead of you listening to them and asking questions and diving in deeper to find the meanings for why they create the meanings that they have, you just naturally blanket assume that whatever they've just told you is the end-all be-all. And now it's time for you to compare and contrast your experience to theirs. My very first therapist um, in Los Angeles, California was, um, her name was Annabelle. And I remember that very, very well because I named my motorcycle Annabelle because I felt like Annabelle, my therapist, was helping me get from where I was then to somewhere amazingly new. I bought my first motorcycle and I thought, well, this motorcycle is getting me from where I've been to somewhere amazingly new. So, and I did idealize her and put her on a pedestal. Um, I just was fascinated by the way she was able to help me get through the muck and mire in my brain. And one of the things that she told me was that... And she goes, Jesse, your trauma is your trauma, and you need to embrace it as being just as valid as anyone else's. If you minimize it, then how are others going to know any better than to do that back to you? And what's so powerful about that, and I'll repeat it, 
Your trauma is your trauma, and you need to embrace it as being just as valid as anyone else's. If you minimize it, meaning my trauma, if you minimize your trauma, then how are others going to know any better than to do that to you, meaning minimizing my trauma back at me? And one of the reasons this came up was because um, I would sit there and say things well, like, you know, my childhood wasn't that bad. It wasn't like my dad beat me, you know, with the belt buckle and burned me with cigarettes. I was like, yeah, I got spanked for not getting good grades. And my mom was, you know, shitting in a plastic bag most of her life. And it always wanted to, it, not always, but it tended to break open in places like zoos and shopping malls and movie theaters. The most inopportune time with as many people as we knew around us. Hell, it broke open during an ice storm in the Oklahoma City airport one time. And that was an absolute catastrophe. Um, you know, and I was like, I was like, but you know what? Other people, you know, their 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 dads ran out on them. Their mother, you know, went to prison. They lived in foster care. They were burned with cigarettes. You know, they found you know needle drugs at nine years old. And she's just like, no, 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 no. You can you cannot minimize your trauma. Your trauma is your trauma. Whatever happened is what happened to you. And however you dealt with it in order to get to me and sit here today, you did the best you could with what you knew how to do things at the time. Oddly enough, a lot of the things that she said had very, very strong um, annotations into neuro-linguistic programming. You're doing the best you can with what you knew how to do then. And that's right up there with your, you're doing the, everybody's doing the best they can with the resources they have. There's a lot of things. And what I, why I want to bring this episode, we're not done with talking about this. That's why we're calling it Stigma Part 1. Is because whenever I hear people say things like, well, I, I had, a, you know, I only got paid, you know, $7 an hour as a kid for whenever I was, you know, working at Pizza Hut and I didn't even have a car and my parents weren't even around. And when my dad was around, he was drunk all the time and my mom was always checked out on pills and, you know, my whole family was this and that and the other. And, you know, I got, you know, got my uncle touched me the wrong way when I was six years old. And, you know, what's my kid bitching and moaning about? What are they complaining about? Why are they addicted to drugs? Why are they always staring at their phone? Why are they always complaining? They had it way better than me. We can't possibly understand how the human brain takes on, how the human brain processes things that happen to us in our lives. Adverse childhood experiences, there's just infinite possibilities in those. Right. One per you know, one kid yells, Mommy, mommy, look, look, and mommy and mom never looks. Now the kid might go off and see that you know, feel isolated, feel alone, and now they might go off and think, Well, no one loves me and I'm just gonna isolate the rest of my life. Another kid says, Fuck it, if mom's not gonna look at me, I'm gonna make sure everybody else is and then they go off to become an amazing performer or they go off to become a criminal so that at least any attention's better than no attention. Another kid says, look, mommy, look, 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 and the mom's always looking. And at some point, they, they, they could take that on as, you know, uh, you know, then everybody's always supposed to be paying attention to me. And then when people stop paying attention to the child, now that's the adverse childhood experience. Right? Or mommy, mommy, look, always looks, and then, you know, everything's hunky-dory till one day mom gets sick, and now mom can't look anymore. And now that the child's taken on an adverse childhood experience of, oh, my goodness, sickness means I don't get the attention. So anybody t- anytime somebody gets sick, I'm going to be left alone, and no one's going to love me. I'm not going to get c- close to anyone because, heaven forbid, I get close to someone, and then they stop paying attention to me, and now they're isolated and alone. I just threw out four examples that may or may not have clicked with you, but regardless of whether they have completely jibed or not, the point is that that same thing, mommy, mommy, look, look, and whether mom looks or doesn't look can create infinite 
infinite different kinds of experiences. And some can be traumatic, and some can be uplifting. Some will turn into adverse childhood experiences, and others will turn into great memories. We don't know how the human mind processes stuff, and each human does it differently. So when you say things like, well, I had this happen, what the hell is your problem? You are completely just eliminating that person's natural human condition, that, na- that, that person's life. It's the thing is like, your life has so little meaning because mine was blank, 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 and yours was blank, 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 and fr- frankly, frankly, I had it worse. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for saying that. Cool. Uh, I'm never going to talk to you again, and I'm going to go over here and stare at the wall. <laughs> Because no one wants to be negated like that. No one. And I can assure you, if you go to meetings regularly, you're going to hear people say, if I can do it, so can you. They're going to tell you their story, and they're going to paint it all dark and blah. And then what? You're going to be sitting there being like, well, he's right. I mean, he was burned with cigarettes and duct taped to a heater, and he's got third-degree burns on the back of his legs. I was just, <laughs> mom just didn't look. Why am I an addict? Why am I such a little bitch? Why, what the, why am I such a loser? Why am, I, why am I an addict? My life was actually way better than that person. I'm fucking, I mean, I should just drink today. Right? It's not helping anyone. <laughs> I think it's extremely important. That we start to notice these things, the way people say and talk about things in front of us. We can be empathetic, having this ability to understand and share in with the feelings of another person without being such an empath that we take on their feelings. Right? We can be compassionate, where we're sympathetic and we, uh, and we have concern for the sufferings and the misfortunes of others. We can be sympathetic, where we have these feelings of sorrow and sadness for somebody else's misfortunes. Right? We can have this understanding between one another as human beings, that we've had similar common feelings in our lives, that we've all felt guilt, shame, sadness, fear, isolation, loneliness, rejection. We've all felt those in one way or another. Now, my way may not seem as heinous as yours. I could have had uh, rejection just simply by mom never looking whenever I asked her to look. And you could have had rejection by somebody not showing up at the altar one day. And while, yeah, societally, there might be a, somebody like, what? Your mom just didn't look at you? Stop being such a little baby about that. Wow, you were left at the altar? That's fucking horrible, right? Society might want to try to throw their judgment statements on that. Unless society do whatever society wants to do. What we're going to do is start behaving like people who are grounded and connected to one another as the amazing spiritual beings that we are. And maybe the rest of society will start to get on board when enough of us do this. And a really great way to start to build bridges rather than closing them down is being mindful of how you say and talk about things in front of other people when it comes to doing a comparison. Are you deleting information? You can say whatever you want to say about your life, but if somebody else comes back and says their thing and you're like, wow, you're right, that was way worse, or that was nothing, mine was worse, now we're doing a comparative deletion. Now we're putting ourselves in a position where one person's life has to be worse than the other's. How about nobody's life has to be worse than anybody else's life? How about we've all had the lives we've had, we processed the information the way it was processed. And in NLP, I teach you how your brain processes all of this so you can go in and you can find root causes for this trauma. You can actually heal it. You can go into the past, you can, you can go into the trauma, take the lesson, leave the sadness, the sorrow, the suffering back there with the memory, 
where it belongs, and you can bring the lesson forward and use it as strength and courage and confidence. This is stuff that I teach because it matters, and it's what I've been using on myself and guiding myself through for five years now. But at no point while I hear somebody else say something and then say, that was nothing, or wow, dude, you're right. That is bad. I will honor them for being vulnerable and sharing their lived experience with me. Wow, I can understand completely how that must feel and sound and look so painful when you think about this. I really appreciate you for sharing that vulnerable experience you've had. I'm honored to have been somebody who you felt safe enough to do that with. That's the kind of reaction, the response, sorry, response that I would like to be for other people. That's the kind of response you can be for someone else. And if you ever get up in front of one of these meetings and you share your story, you hear somebody else share it, just be mindful not to say things like, if I can do it, so can you. Because I know it sounds encouraging, but it also sounds minimizing. And if somebody else is sitting over there and then you say that and you tell your story and they're either like, my story's not as worse as that or my story's way worse than that. All right, and I get we can't we cannot control if somebody else gets triggered or not. We are not, you know, responsible for how somebody else is how somebody else feels. But when you're communicating with someone and you have that opportunity to build a connection, minimizing and comparative in, in deleting things and trying to compare or contrast where it's not even necessary. It's not even necessary. Thank them for sharing. Embrace them if that's something that feels comfortable in the moment between the two of you. Thank them. Show appreciation that they feel comfortable and safe to share that stuff with you. And be mindful that if you start going around and trying to compare your life to other people, whether it was better or for worse, you are deleting so much information. It's like your brain can't even comprehend the infinite amount of things that you've experienced and that they've experienced that have led you in front of one another today. Instead of trying to do a bunch of comparison and contrasting, how about instead we do a lot more loving and connecting? That's the, that's the kind of inclusive world we're looking to create here. And you're a part of it. Not just because you listen to this show, but because you do all the other things that you do on top of listening to this show. I am just one piece of your humongously large puzzle. And whatever guidance and mentoring I can provide to you, excellent. Outside of this show, it's up to you to take action. Be the, It's going to sound a little cheesy, but be the change you want to see in the world. You want somebody else to live the, their life at a certain level, one, release judgment, but two, how about you be the model of that behavior? Let's, let's start being the models of behavior. Just because I did it does not necessarily mean it'll be as easy or as hard for you. Because we are humans and we've seen other people achieve it, yes, that does mean it's achievable. But when we say things like, if I can do it, so can you, we think that it sounds uplifting. But I can assure you, inside that other person's mind, it sounds a whole lot more like comparing. And it can be derogatory, dehumanizing. It can absolutely leave somebody feeling isolated. Let's instead shift it and be like, you know what? I did it. And here's some of the ways that I was able to achieve it. Let's see what we can make work with you. That, my friends, is powerful. That sounds connecting. 
That's the kind of love that will bridge us from the 21st century to the 22nd century. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, we'll make it out of this century alive. All right, my friends, inclusivity over exclusivity, the power of positive energy, release and flow. Every day is the best day of our lives because we wake up sober. When we wake up sober, hallelujah, when we're sober. Shout out to Sunshine, glow on. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. 